From Sydney Opera House, welcome to It's a Long Story, a podcast exploring the stories behind the ideas. I'm your host, Anne Mossop. I'm Junine Di Giovanni. I'm a mother and a reporter of conflict. And uh, I like to call myself a human rights defender because basically I work mainly with people in conflict zones who have stories to tell. As a war correspondent, Janine Di Giovanni has spent the last 30 years covering stories in the most dangerous places on earth. She first reported from Palestine in the late 1980s and has covered almost every major conflict area since, most recently working in Syria. Her book, The Morning They Came For Us, tells a sequence of powerful and harrowing stories about the effect of the Syrian civil war on ordinary people. Of her work, Janine has said, I'm deluded if I think that what I do as a journalist can stop war. All I am is a witness. My role is to bring a voice to people who are voiceless. Janine. What, are, what was your childhood like? <laughs> I'm the youngest of seven children in um, an Italian-American family. We grew up in New Jersey. My eldest sister is much older than me, 18 years older, and I was the youngest. And uh, I had four brothers. I, a sister had died 10 years before I was born. And we grew up in a very traditional family. We all went to Catholic school. Um, we all had to sit down at the table for dinner. We said grace before dinner. And it was interesting because my family was extremely old school and traditional and old world. But outside, you know, I was born in, in the, in the mid sixties and, you know, there was a revolution raging in America. Um, the Vietnam War, the sexual revolution, the feminist movement. Um, so really interesting time to be growing up. I think my mom didn't work. She was a housewife, but I mean, she would deeply resent me saying she didn't work because she would say that, you know, she, she worked, worked constantly. constantly and she did. Um, and one day she actually, at the height of, you know, the feminist movement, when there was all kinds of women's liberation empowerment sessions, she once actually sat down and um, worked out in hours how much my father owed her, like how much since she married at the age of 22 and had her first child and, you know, exactly how much on minimum wage he, he owed her. Um, so my mom is, she's still alive. She's in her 90s and she's an amazing woman because she lived through, she was born at the tail end of World War One. the very, actually it was over. She was born in 1919. She then went through the Great Depression in America, the Roaring Twenties, the Great Depression in America, World War II, um, the Cold War, the Sexual Revolution, um, the Vietnam War, and, you know, she's still alive now living in the Trump era in America. So I, you know, I think she's one of the wisest and most remarkable women I know. You became a war journalist. You were inspired by an article about an Israeli human rights lawyer defending Palestinians in a military court. What was it about that article or finding out about those stories that made you want to go and cover them? Well, you know, it's interesting. I never call myself a war reporter. Other people do, and I, I understand why. And, you know, if you had to kind of put me into a box, that, that is what I do. I'm a reporter, 
and I cover war. I don't cover the Oscars or I don't cover the opera, um, which I would love to, but I, I don't. I never wanted to be a journalist. It wasn't really my intention. I was setting out in life to be an academic. But like most people in their 20s, I really didn't know. I knew I wanted to write because I'd been writing since I was since I could hold a pencil. I told stories and I made up stories and I read books. So, I mean, I knew that my life was going to be in one way or another something artistic. And it's interesting now because I often think like, why didn't I go into government? You know, why didn't I think about in my 20s, you know, doing that that trajectory of, of working for the UN or going into government or going into parliament or something like that? But it wasn't the way I thought then. I mean, I knew one thing about myself when I left university, and that was that I could not in any way survive if I was in an office from nine to five and had a kind of very standard routine. I thought it would kill me. I knew that about myself, but that's about it. <laughs> um, For early 20s, not not bad at all. <laughs> you covered the first Palestinian intifada in the late 1980s. What was that like to get off that plane? So the road that I became a journalist was that I went to Palestine when I was doing my master's degree in comparative literature. And I went with my first husband, who was also like me, kind of trying to work out what he was going to do with his life. And it was photography. That's what he felt he would go towards. We met this extraordinary woman who influenced and changed my life um, called Felicia Langer. And she was a Polish Jewish refugee who had been um, in one of the camps and then had emigrated to Israel but basically, she had devoted her life to defending Palestinians in military court from the occupation, from 1967. And the reason I was so drawn to her was that she lost nearly all of her cases. And I found it extraordinary that someone could get up every single day, knowing that the day before they had lost, but you kept going. And that, to me, was the meaning of true commitment to a cause, and to doing what's right. You know, there's times, I'm not comparing myself to her in any way, but there's times when I get frustrated or tired or weary. It's more a kind of like weariness that comes over me of what I do and um, what I'll do next and whether or not it has any impact. And in this day and age we live where there's so many outlets for news. You know, people look at websites, they listen to podcasts. They So I might spend weeks writing a story about the famine in Yemen and no one might see it, you know, or it's not going to be as widely read as the story about the Oscar, you know, La La Land getting the award, but in fact it went to Moonlight. <laughs> you know, so so I, I think she inspired me more than anything. And, and also she believed in justice. She just believed in justice. She said something to me, which stuck with me for the rest of my life, which is that if you have the ability to go to these places and write about these people, then you have an obligation. It was she who first sent me or took, she didn't bring me, but she gave me contacts to go to Gaza and to the West Bank. And I remember being so horrified by what I saw so horrified because I had grown up in a very sheltered environment and I had no idea that people could live with such oppression and repression and misery and squalor 
for years. I mean, this was the 1990s, early 1990s, and many of those people had, they had lived there since 1947. So it was a generational thing. You know, it was small kids who now are parents of other, parents small, of kids. other small kids. And it's really horrible. But um, during the second Intifada, I went back, I had done a story about children in the Intifada in the first Intifada. Uh, intifada meaning uprising, for those who don't know. And in the second Intifada, which was 2000, 2001, 2002, I took an article that I had written in the early 90s about several kids in Gaza, and we went back to try to find them. And it was so heartbreaking because one of them was dead, one of them was in jail, one of them had was in exile, and we only found one, um, only one of the kids. And it just made me think about the continuing cycle of violence and when will it ever end. And I fear that Palestine's been left behind now um, with Syria, with the rest of the world. We really turned our gaze away from it, myself included. And partly because, precisely because it has been going on for so long that it's a kind of a background, people are used to it and are distracted by something else, but which makes it all the more tragic in a way that there's this this ongoing issue. You covered the Balkan Wars in the 1990s and returned there in 2011 to work on a project tracing war criminals. You talk about the potent emotion that you felt towards the Balkan Wars and their aftermath. You say it was a terrible fever, not unlike malaria, recurring in your bloodstream forever once you got it, that had gripped me since I had reported from Bosnia. What was it about that conflict that made it have that effect on you? I think it was personal. It was very personal because I was a very young woman when I went there. I was very naive. It was, even though I had been in the West Bank and Gaza before, it really was my first war. And, you know, Martha Gellhorn said this great thing, which is you can only love one war, the rest is responsibility. And I think that's very true. And I just think it was an ongoing love affair. But at one point, like all love affairs that are a bit toxic, you have to cut it out. Once I actually finished that story in 2012 about the war criminals, I just thought I really need a break from Bosnia right now. I can't, you know, it just, it was too painful. It's funny because recently I went back to Iowa City where I'd gone to graduate school and had done an MFA in this very prestigious writing program called the Iowa Writers Workshop. And I was invited back as a visiting professor for a week. So I went and it was very healing because when I had gone there as a student, I was only 23. It was and is an incredibly uh, competitive and quite brutal place. I mean, it wasn't a very warm, cozy thing for a place for a young writer to be. It was really brutal. And so I went back and it was, you know, but this time I was going back as a teacher and it was really interesting. And there was a young man who was assigned to walk me back and forth to various classes in the campus. A lovely young guy from Damascus. And he had left Damascus when he was 16 years old because he had been taking part in the uprising in Syria and he'd been thrown into prison. And his parents very wisely got him out. As soon as he was released, they we went over the border to Lebanon and then they got him to America where he had an older brother. And he was at the University of Iowa studying dentistry. And he was a very quiet, thoughtful guy that didn't wear his heart on his sleeve. He was in a fraternity 
in his spare time, he was a big brother, which is like someone who teaches young African-American kids to play basketball and to, you know, to help them, kids who don't have fathers and brothers. We didn't talk about a lot about Syria, but every time I looked at him, I just felt like my heart was ripped out. And I had the same feeling with him that I had with some of my Bosnian friends. And it was something about these generations of people that were lost in the world because he, here he was going to school in America and he's one of the lucky ones. Let's face it. He's not dead. He's not in a, a prison, an Assad prison, but he was so displaced and he was so lost and he was in so much pain and he was so alone. And when Trump's immigrant, ban, whatever ban, whatever he calls it, migrant ban, refugee ban, came into effect, the first person I thought of was this kid, Mo, because he was had been waiting for his green card, whatever it's called. And I sent him a message and he wrote back and said, well, I guess I'm not going to get it now, so I'll have to think of where to go, Canada. And I just thought about all these people who are displaced by war and conflict and they're drifting and they're, their sadness and their sorrow. And there's just so many of them. You know, I think about a Vietnamese writer I met in the early 90s, who had been a child soldier on the Ho Chi Minh Trail. And he wrote an extraordinary book called The Sorrow of War about his days of being a teenage soldier and what happened to all his friends, how most of them were killed. And when I went to meet him in Hanoi, he was completely drunk and it was like 10 o'clock in the morning. And he just, I realized like, the trauma that you experience from these kind of things just <laughs> doesn't just go away like that. In your most recent book, The Morning They Came For Us, Dispatches from Syria, you say that a friend warned you not to start working in Syria because it would engulf you, as Bosnia had done. You ignored this advice. Well, maybe I thought that I was older now and that I could probably do this with more distance because, you know, after all, I've covered other conflicts and did not get, you know, Afghanistan, for instance, you know, I could cover it as a reporter would. And I didn't feel this you know, bloodletting that I, you know, felt that my, my heart and my soul was completely engulfed in it. So I don't know what or why there are certain places that just seem to get under your skin. Syria did. And, and, you know, it's only now that I'm beginning to feel like I need to detach from it, mainly because it's, it's just, it's such an investment of your life. And it, it just takes too much out of you to be angry all the time. You know, when Aleppo fell, I remember feeling like such a failure. And then I thought about it. I said, it's not my failure. I'm not a diplomat. I'm not President Obama. I'm not Angela Merkel. You know, it's not my personal failure. But I don't know. I mean, I just, I, I tend to take these things very seriously. <laughs> in your work as a journalist in Syria, uh, you researched the stories of, of women who had been raped and you worked for the UNHCR researching the stories of women who were alone and potentially vulnerable to sexual predation. What did you find out and, and what is the particular tragedy of sexual violence in a culture like Syria? Well, not just Syria, you know. I think war is often an opportunity for men to use rape or sexual violence against women as a way of, of wearing down society. And it's a way of humiliating the men folk because it's saying, you know, we could take your women, we could take your daughters, we could take your wives. It's a way of 
of destroying society because in particular cultures, if you're raped, if you have sex with someone who's not your husband, it's, um, you're, you're untouchable. It's so much more than a sexual act. You know, it really has these very deep underlying levels of, 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 you know, crime against humanity. I feel that, you know, it's really important to examine this. And it's only here in Sydney at the, the All About Women Festival that an idea bing popped into my head like a light bulb um, from someone who came to buy my book and, and was signing it. And it was two young women who said, you know, we've just finished studying media studies and gender studies. And I suddenly thought, you know, there should be training for women journalists to study sexual violence during wartime, a very specific field because it's not, and someone, another, someone else had asked me a question earlier, a journalist here saying, do you think that men can ever um, research this or interview other women? And I said, no, I really don't think so. I mean, of course there's you know, uncountable number of compassionate, empathetic, wonderful male journalists. But that's not the point. The point is that I think with this kind of crime, I think it only can be done by women. And I think that it would be a really interesting initiative to start training young women, journalists, researchers, academics in this particular area. You mentioned your feelings at the fall of Aleppo and, and having to talk, talk yourself out of feeling that it was a personal failure and who those failures do really belong to. What are the things that could have made a difference, you think? I, I very much believe that it, it, humanitarian intervention early on would have made a huge difference. I don't think we'd still be in the war. I mean, I think the moment that we realized that chemical warfare was being used in, in 2013 and President Obama, who I had a huge amount of respect for, said that that would be the red line and then he backed away from the red line. That was a moment when we, the West, Australia, uh, the US, France, Britain, all the so-called, you know, international community, that we lost our moral stand when we basically said, okay, you can get away with this. It's only Syrian civilians. Well, okay, it's only Syrian civilians. The next time it will be us. And who will be there to stand up for us? And this is how the accumulation of war crimes like this and allowing them, allowing the people who do them not to be held to accountability is little by little by little wearing away the framework of any kind of, of justice system. You said on your recounting, Syria, as much as I like to think policymakers and politicians would read my words and do something, I don't delude myself. Aside from the victims and that role of telling the stories of those who don't have voices, who are you writing for? I think history, I hope. Well, I would love it if my books were given to school children of a certain age. I mean, you know, I still, my son is 13 and I, he hasn't read my books. I think maybe kids from the age of 14, 15, 16 should, should read them because they should know what happens during wartime in the way that when I read Anne Frank, and I'm not comparing my work to Anne Frank, but it was so important to me. And the importance of that whole sense of documentation from the people, the people who were the protagonists in these events, people to whom these things really happen, that extraordinary sense on reading your stories of a whole range of different people involved in the war from different points of view, how you get a sense of a conflict from looking through the eyes of those people. 
I try, and I hope it doesn't sound too grand, for it to be a kind of oral history. Yes, I mean, I'm writing it for them, primarily for the people, so that they feel that they're able to to talk, to, to say something. And I remember standing by um, a mass grave once that was being opened up in Iraq, a Shia mass grave where dozens of bodies of men who had disappeared in the Saddam days, never to be found again, were being unearthed after uh, the fall of Saddam in 2003. And I remember a woman next to me, like just grabbing my arm and saying, please, 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 can I talk to you? Can I talk to you? And I've never, ever um, forced anyone to talk to me. You know, if people want to talk to me, then, you know, I'm there to listen. And it, it means sitting on the floor and drinking a lot of cups of tea and smoking a lot of cigarettes and sometimes sleeping in the house with them and eating with them and living with them and taking time and time and time and time and time and patience and, you know, listening to their story and getting as much detail as you can. And I think it's important. The next project I really want to work on is about vanishing Christians in the Middle East. And I'm really interested in this as, as a Catholic and all over the Middle East, wherever I've been working, I've always gone into various churches, Chaldean, um, Greek Orthodox, uh, Armenian, and the faith of these ancient people um, always astounds me. I remember being at a mass in Iraq, northern Iraq, in Mosul, right before the invasion, um, the American invasion in 2003, and, and seeing these people praying in Aramaic, the language of Jesus Christ, how moving it is. And, and now I feel that they're, they're very much endangered. That's a beautiful note to end on with the look at the future project. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was fun. <laughs> it's a Long Story is recorded at the Sydney Opera House as part of the Talks and Ideas program. Our show is hosted by me, Anne Mossop and is produced and edited by Cara Jensen-McKinnon. Our theme music is by Rishikesh Hirway. We're recorded by Mark Pickles, and our executive producer is Danielle Harvey. 